Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Praise the Lord for His goodness and grace. We're going to be in Job chapter 40, starting in verse 6. And let's open in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, that you are an awesome God, that you are the risen and exalted one, that you chose to t- take humanity upon yourself to be clothed in flesh, to suffer humiliation and death on the cross, to rise from the dead and ascend into glory, and thus make a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be saved and redeemed. And we magnify and exalt your holy name. Thank you that you are almighty, glorious, and good in every way, faithful and true. So we come to you, Lord, hungry to hear from you, to receive of your truth, and to walk in the light of the gospel and your grace. Please speak to our hearts and minister your word to our lives as needed, and thank you that you have purposes and plans that you are accomplishing even today as we gather. We pray that your hand of protection be upon those who've been affected by floods and warfare and trouble in families and in hearts, and Lord, we pray that you would show your redeeming hand and you would restore people to fellowship with you and one another, that you'd be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Really enjoyed the last few weeks of reading through Job and seeing God displaying his power and wisdom and the things that he's created in the world and in the animals. And I'm really impressed. Like, I'm really super impressed by that. But I'm even impressed by someone that can make a realistic depiction of a face or a landscape with, with like a, a pencil or with a paintbrush. And it's like, well, that's a great representation, but it's not the real thing. The real thing is so much grander and glorious. And, and I am amazed because I can't draw like that. I don't have the skills or the talents to paint and to make it look like anything. And if I just get it one color, I'm doing pretty well. Um, and how much greater is the power of God to create from nothing all that we see? Everything, the, and we are surrounded by life everywhere where you have the, the green leaves of the tree blowing in the wind, birds flying, children screaming and playing in the street. David considered the handiwork of God. He said, well, see the stars and the moon. I wonder like, what is man that you're mindful of him? When you're so great and so glorious, how do you even condescend to our level to speak with us and then to become one of us in the person of Jesus? Now, Job had a similar response when he was confronted with the glory of God. He said, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? Seeing yourself as small is not as important as realizing how great God is because we don't need God to make us feel small. We've all been small once and sometimes people can just say something that makes you feel small. You can compare your artwork to someone else and say, wow, mine is terrible compared to that. But compared to God... There is no comparison because he is glorious and uh, everything for us. So what, what we've come to, Job has been asking questions none of his friends could answer. Then God speaks from the whirlwind. He has questions of his own and he demands, Job, you answer me. And he says things like, where were you when I created the earth? Have you commanded the morning since you were born? Like, do you make the sun rise, Job? Have you seen the doors of death? Can you explain how light is divided? And then he launched into this description of creatures that Job would have seen. And he's saying, do you know where the wild donkeys or goats give birth? Or have have you set the wild donkeys free? 
Could you trust or tame wild oxen? Have you, Job, given the horses strength? Have you taught hawks and eagles to make their nests up in the crags? No. Job's like, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. And God wasn't finished with speaking to Job. He has more to say to us as well. So picking up in Job 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. God's like, brace yourself, Job. I have more questions for you. I demand answers. And he says, would you indeed annul or discredit God's justice? So God has made a judgment. He said, would you try to discredit me? Was it reasonable for a sinful, short-sighted human being to call the judgments of God into question as if he was wrong in some way? And did Job realize that in trying to justify himself, he condemned God as doing wrong? So there were implications in the things that Job said. Maybe Job nor we realize the implications of when we're complaining. That if we're complaining about something, it can be speaking against God. It can be undermining his judgments and what he's decided and what he's purposed. Job was a man who feared God. In God's eyes, he was upright. He sought to honor him in every way, yet he was combative and defensive when challenged. And it exposed his pride, which at a fundamental level is vaunting self above God. That's what pride is. It says, I know. It focuses on me. When Satan conversed with Eve in the garden, first he questioned what God said. Then he said, God is lying to you. And then he claimed eating it would unlock divine knowledge. Like if you do this, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And God knows that. And that's why he told you not to. And because it looked tasty and good for food, Eve justified eating it. The actions of Adam and Eve, they condemned God's command as wickedness. Now they weren't as obvious as the devil with the things they said, but their lives, the things they did agreed with the devil. God asked, do you have an arm like mine? Can you thunder like me? He's speaking to a man who's sitting sick and dying in, in ashes, in sackcloth, scraping himself with a pot, with a piece of a, you know, a shard of a pot, just trying to ease his itching. And he's like, are you like me? Are you in my weight class? You think you can go toe to toe with me? You know, like boxing, MMA, they have weight classes. He's like, are you in my level to, uh, to, to come at me? Give me your best shot. Show me what you have, Job. He lost his flocks, his herds, his children. Even the children are mocking him in the village as he's sitting there. Trials had totally affected Job's lifestyle. He was once the, the mightiest man of the East, but now he is sick. Now he's deprived. Now he's grieving. His lifestyle had been impacted, but his heart was unchanged. There was still pride there that God would expose and was showing him right now. Would you speak against me? Would you discredit what I'm doing? Before we post a picture to social media, there's a lot we have control over. We can cover blemishes with makeup. We can make sure the background is exactly what we want. Like 
when you see that picture, you could go, well, what's on the other wall? Like, where's all the, all the rubbish has been moved to the other side of the room. So we have this picture perfect, um, uh, very flattering expression and background. We have a lot to choose from before we go, okay, this is what I want to present to the world or my friends. I want them to see this side of me, something I'm comfortable with. But we can't do this before God. He sees us how we are. He knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He, he has heard everything. We can deny things before men, but you cannot before God. And God says, if, if, you can, if you match me in my power and glory, step up. Job 40, verse 11, disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I, also, I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. So he puts Job to the test. It wasn't a, a battle of wits or strength or can you do or move this thing. He's like, can you humble the proud? Can you find all the proud of the earth and humble them? Could you transform a proud heart to be submissive before God? If you can do that, you rival me because only God can do that. He challenged him. He says, use your wrath to crush all the wicked people. All those who do violence, you bring them down to the grave. You put their souls in hell. Can you do that, Job? And if you can do that, you can save yourself. Of course, Job could not see or know everyone who was pride, proud, proud. He couldn't humble them even if he did. So you notice the proud person. Well, can you do anything to humble them? No. He's unable to tread down the wicked. Only God can do these things. And Job and many of us have come to realize we can't save ourselves, yet we think sometimes it's our job to humble others, to point out their faults or to, to wax, uh, uh, show a bit of rage, to kind of scare them, to kind of put them in their place, to show them the folly of their ways. We're going to warn them. We're going to put the fear of God in them, really. It's when it's the fear of us. You can't save them. You can't humble them. And you can't even change yourself. So God is just exposing the Job has been exposed externally, but now God's getting to the heart of the matter. Pointing out problems in others is easy. Admitting our own pride and sinfulness is hard. Changing our own heart or the hearts of others and saving our souls is impossible. We cannot do that ourselves. We need God. And if we can't save ourselves, how can we possibly humble, humble others by identifying their pride? By going, you're proud. Okay, so what? Does that mean they care? God is able to change us, and that's the awesome thing. He transforms us. Now, in the previous chapters, God's asked many questions about animals. In chapters 40 and 41, he deals only with two creatures in these whole chapters, the behemoth and Leviathan. Based upon the descriptions, I'm not aware of any creatures that exist like this today. As you might imagine, there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of interpretations. Some write them off as extinct animals. I mean, a lot of animals have gone extinct over the last 4,000 years since this was written. Others say these are poetic renderings of animals that do exist today. Others spiritualize the text 
to the point where they're mythological symbols that have no bearing in reality. And it's important, I think, to point out the context of the whole passage is, Job, there's a lot you don't know. There's a lot you can't do. In fact, you can't do anything that I can do. So there's a lot about this that we don't know or fully understand. But without knowing the genus or species of these animals, we haven't seen them in the zoo, we can still learn of the points that God is making to Job. As the description of these two animals follow 12 or so other animals that are real. I mean, we've seen goats and donkeys and horses and hawks and eagles. The context suggests these are also animals that Job would have seen. They are ones that he would have been familiar with or at least heard of. Rather than debating the genus or species of these animals, it would be much more beneficial to receive this as God's word to us to recognize the wisdom and power of God in creating such beasts and to admit our own self-confidence and pride. Those things are like untamed beasts in our own hearts that we can't deliver ourselves from. We need the power of God. We need God. And he's the only one who can help us. It's really easy to be caught up in trying to identify the animals. And a lot of people have spent a lot of effort in trying to say, well, it's kind of like this. and It's kind of like that. It's much better, or, or maybe the spiritual implications of what this is saying. We should be willing instead to confess and repent of our pride, our self-confidence. That's plain as day. We like to debate over controversial things, but this is plain. This is obvious. This is like right on our face. We wear our rage. We wear our pride. And God would have us deal with it and admit that it's there. And that only he can cleanse us of that. Job 40, verse 15. Now look at the behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is first in the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. God turns Job's attention to this behemoth that he created along with mankind. The word just simply means great beast. It's the only place that it's found in the scripture. And we're given information about the eating habits and the, the anatomy of this powerful creature, that it was large and strong and uh, poetic imagery is used about moving its tail like a cedar, which is a massive tree and bones like bronze and ribs like iron. It says, First in the ways of God are the choicest, the finest, the it's ranking first in the beasts of the field that God has created. And the point he makes is no one would think to try to attack behemoth with a sword. It's far too big. It's far. It's not a suitable weapon to take, to take it down because only he who made him can bring near his sword. So the point is if Job knew it was stupid to attack a behemoth single-handedly with a sword, what could he do against God who created behemoth? Isn't God infinitely more powerful than hips and bones and stomach muscles? Yeah, I don't care which stomach. You could have washboard abs. It does not matter. God, is, God created you. Job had not swing a sword at the heavens. He hadn't shaken his fist at God. But God said, 
Job, you've been speaking without knowledge. You don't have the whole picture when you've been complaining about your situation. The questions you're asking, it shows that you're questioning me. In justifying yourself, you are condemning what I've done. Job didn't understand what his protests implied, that he sought to annul God's judgment and condemned God. In God's word, it says that it's, it's living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. David wrote that men's words can be weaponized in Psalm 64, 2 through 4. He writes, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. Job was blameless in God's eyes, but his friends, they took aim at him. And in an attempt to defend himself, he lashed out in kind and accused God. David said that people sharpen their tongues to take aim at the blameless. And who is more blameless than God? Every time his name is blasphemed, everything, every time government is called into question, when he established that government that we are to obey, and to show respect to the authority he has placed. We undermine what he has done and said. So this is a great challenge to our pride that thinks we know better. If Job could do this unknowingly, it follows we can too. And hopefully the Lord will open our eyes to see when our complaints are seeking to annul his judgment. Verse 20, surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in the covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes or one pierces his nose with a snare. God said that the behemoth ate grass like an ox. The mountains yielded food for him. He rested among reeds and the, uh, the lotus trees in Israel is a, sh it's a thorny shrub. So you just get the idea of this massive animal just kind of lurking in the cool of this bush. Even if the river is raging, he is content and undisturbed. It doesn't matter if there's a flood. It's just immovable. That's his domain. His temperament was confident. He's not intimidated by anything. I remember years ago fishing off mission uh, Bay Jetty. And we would, so it was kind of something for everybody there. Um, not to mention the rats that would be scurrying around and getting your bait. So you're like on the guard against the rats, like don't leave the bait there. But then you'd be fishing. And while you were waiting for a fish, maybe to bite, there were lots of crabs and the kids loved to, you know, bait up a hook and just try to lure crabs out and catch them and then just put them back and Remember the boys once, uh, most crabs, even the bait would scare them. They would just run off and then maybe get like, kind of like, what's this? And start touching it. And you'd, you'd get to, they get a good grip on it and then put it in the bucket and play with them. But anyway, there was one time that there was a crab that was used to having its way. And I'd never seen, I've been in those rocks for a long time. And I reached in there and this crab, it had like a claws the size of my hand. And I was like, whoa. That was a bold, confident crab. It's used to getting its way. And uh, I'm glad that I was able to withdraw my finger fast enough. So it's like that, that biggest crab I've ever seen was the most confident crab. It was not backing down. It was like coming out for me. And uh, the behemoth 
self-confident. It's the biggest fella in town. He's not going to back down from anybody. Now, the rendering of verse 24, it's different between translations. If you're reading a New King James Version or King James, know that the italicized words, it's not to um, emphasize something. Italicized words are placed there by translators to best convey the original texts in proper English. So when you read that in one of those versions, it will have italics occasionally. On face value, what can appear to contradict can be actually complementary. They complement each other. The behemoth was confident even with a river rushing into its mouth or eyes. Even if its nose was pierced, it didn't affect its boldness. The King James more resembles the NIV. It says, can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? The idea is, is that nobody could catch this beast. Nobody could take the sword to it. It was too big. It was too strong. And if a sensible person would steer clear of a behemoth, well, shouldn't you be respectful and steer clear of offending the most high, the almighty God who created that beast? It doesn't take much to disturb us, right? It says the beast, the river is raging and it's undisturbed. We can be disturbed like a flood disturbs us. We have to leave our houses, some people, because they're in the flood path. God is undisturbed by nations that rage and plot against his anointed. It says in Psalms two, that God's not disturbed at all. He's not lacking in confidence. He has, he has all power, all knowledge. He is not afraid of anything. Job 40 verse one. Can you draw Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line, which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with the hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Since this description of Leviathan follows directly after behemoth, and those other animals, it's likely to believe that it's an animal God created and was seen by Job or heard by him. And unlike the behemoth, which is not mentioned elsewhere, Leviathan is mentioned in a handful of places uh, in different contexts. For instance, I'll just read a few of them to you. In Psalm 104, 25 and 26, it reads, This great and wide sea, in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great, there the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan, which you have made to play there. So clearly a reference to sea creature that somebody saw, that they could see it breaching the, the water or, you know, it would be visible to a sailor. Now things become more complex as we see the Leviathan is also mentioned in regards to power, like government power or military might. And we read of that in the context of God dividing the Red Sea. So God's people were enslaved in Egypt. God broke the power that the Egyptians held over them. Part of the Red Sea is people walked through and the water came upon the heads of his rulers. As it says in Psalm 74, 12 through 14. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. 
There's also passages that will reference Satan or a dragon, like in Revelation 12. And it's written concerning the future day of judgment in Isaiah 27.1. It says, in that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. It's clear then that Leviathan is an actual creature, but there are allusions to it, which at times mean more than just a sea creature. But because it's in this passage and Job, it's in reference to an animal. That's how I am going to address it. Just at face value as a sea creature. Anyone here gone fishing recently? Fished with a line? Yeah, a couple of fishermen out there. Well, that goes back to ancient Egypt where they have pictures and they're you know, drawings of people with a rod. They didn't have a reel, but they would usually have the, the line out of gut and the, the hook would be made out of carved shell or bone. And it would be basically the string as long as the, the rod. And you would just dip, dip it into the water. And then when the fish gets, you just pull it right out. So there's no reeling. It's, it's very simple kind of fishing. And he says, can you land Leviathan with a hook? Can you snare him and pierce his jaws? And the answer is obviously no. And that kind of fishing means you have to be really close. And that would be very dangerous as we continue to read of what Leviathan looks like. And he's saying, it's really comical questions where he's asking, the Leviathan is not like other creatures that you would, that enjoy a pet. They're friendly. You can tame them. You could catch them and put them in a cage and say, here, my sweet three-year-old daughter, here's your birthday present, a bird for you to play with and feed. The Leviathan is not going to abide by that. That is ridiculous. He's not going to be put on a lead. He's not going to be led around town. So like a big, like strong pity or something where you're like, oh, that's a pretty buff dog. How much does it eat? Like that guy's got a Leviathan just carting it around flexing on everybody. No, you're not going to do that with this creature. He's not going to be caught by you. He is going to fight you. He is fierce. You don't even want to mess with him. Even if you were desperate for food, even if you said, let's get him and we'll apportion him and sell his parts. He's like, you can't do it. He is too mighty, too strong. All harpoons and spears would be futile. Now, I've been fishing on commercial boats before. And there was one thing that meant you were in for a long day. Sea lions. It's the worst. Because what happens is they just start congregating by the boat and they're just waiting for you to bring dinner to them. They don't have to go hunting at all. You have caught the fish. The fish is being pulled one way and it really can't do much except be eaten. And I've seen many just someone's like a big fish and then, oh, nothing. And then, oh, I got the head. Just got the whole thing. And what happens if you, if you catch a fish that has been caught by a sea lion, the deckhand will promptly cut the line. Why? Well, they don't want a 360 kilo mammal just fighting everybody on the boat. That is not a good thing. It's dangerous. And so they will cut that line. And uh, if it's too dangerous to land a sea lion who's nice and soft, I mean, he has that sharp end you know, those teeth, how much more the Leviathan with primitive gear and like a kayak, it's just ludicrous. 
You wouldn't even think about it. You couldn't tire him out, right? Sometimes you're catching a big fish. It can take an hour to bring it in, uh, multiple hours. So you're, you're weakening it. You're tiring it. If you bring it in too soon, it's going to be dangerous if the swordfish is kicking around in your boat. But you can't tire out the Leviathan with you know, two meters of string. It's not going to work. Verse 8, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. Should you survive an encounter with Leviathan? You would learn it is a creature to avoid. Lay your hand on him. It's likely you would never see or use that hand again. Catching sight of a Leviathan was an overwhelming situation. Where he says, wouldn't you be overwhelmed just to see him? It's like when the warriors of AI, they they were confident. They went out to attack the Israelites and, and suddenly... They turned behind them and they saw their city on fire, the whole city, just up in flames. And it says they were so overcome, they weren't even able to run. They just were like, we're done. They gave up. And it's like, when you see this animal in its natural environment, you're like, get me out of here. I do not want to go toe to toe with that. Now we can be easily afraid or startled. Like some people don't like wasps or spiders or roaches or you know, mice that scurry. You're like, ooh, I want to get away from those things. Like when encountering a grizzly bear, like if, if you can't scare it initially, the, the only defense you have is to play dead. It's 700 kilos of ferocity. The only way that you will survive that is to not fight back. And it's like that with the Leviathan. Like, lay, don't lay your hand on him. You would not try to stir him up. You're not that foolish. If you fancy yourself fierce, you wouldn't go near him. God makes his point. He says, if you would not dare to stir up Leviathan, who then is able to stand against me? If you can't pull that beast into your boat, if you can't overcome him, who can stand against me? Because I made him. He didn't precede me. I preceded him. If we feared God as much as people feared Leviathan, it would be infinitely less than God deserves. God's an unseen spirit by our eyes and we can just forget he exists. We don't even realize he can see us and he knows what's going on. I heard that when the movie Jaws came out, there were people who had this irrational fear of the water. But isn't it rational to avoid taking a proud stand against God who created sharks who created Leviathan, if we're going to avoid insects or animals that frighten us, shouldn't we fear God whose greatness overpowers us? Isn't that the most rational, rational, reasonable thing to do? To fear God and realize that he is glorious and powerful. God continues with this description in verse 12. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. 
Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid because of his crashings. They are beside themselves. He describes the appearance of the Leviathan. He's got these powerful movements, dreadful teeth, rows of scales that protect him. You wouldn't think, let's put a bridle on this guy so we can ride him. Like you're just not thinking like that. It's very dangerous, deadly. His eyes, it says, reminiscent of the sunrise that are bright and glowing. It seems that he could kindle coals with his breath. And even if this is a poetic description of an animal breaching or spewing out steam on a cold morning, it is a formidable, fearsome beast. Hunters, they would take aim at the heart, but the heart was so hard, it was plated. It was not accessible to them. And a heart of stone, it's also um, unfeeling, uncaring, without pity, compassion, or love. It's like those scales, they are firmly in place. You're not moving them. They don't part. Quite unlike the mighty men who scattered when he starts thrashing around. They're like, we want nothing to do with him. Picking up in verse 26. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail. Nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp potsherds. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. On earth, there is nothing like him, which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. All weapons made by man, they were ineffective to pierce or injure him at all. It's like spears, arrows, lances. They were the best they could do. A stone even, right? A stone felled Goliath, but it did not do anything to Leviathan. They were of no use. They weren't even a threat. It was like nothing to him. Imagine getting attacked with some straw. I mean, that wouldn't be intimidating to us. Talks about how he left these distinguishing marks in the mud. When I've, again, deep sea fishing, there's point where you're fighting a fish and for the longest time, if you're down, you know, 50, 60 meters, you don't, you're wondering like, what is this? And it's not until you say color where you see the scales of the fish begin to catch the light and you realize, okay, I'm getting an idea of what it is. And that means get the net, get the gaff. You don't need to bother with that until you see color because the fish of course could uh, spit the line before then. It's exciting moment to see that fish you've been fighting for an hour, but I imagine a very different feeling if you're in a kayak and suddenly Leviathan breaches on top of you and uh, there's nothing you can do about it. An apex predator rearing up. You realize I'm the prey and I have no defense. Verse 33, it says, on earth, there is nothing like him, which is made without fear. Fearness, fearlessness. It's marked by boldness without restraint. Full commitment to attack without thought of retreat. Constant persistence. Fearlessness. 
Then God said, he beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. Now it's compelling to consider how this description, it it shares features with that of Satan, who was Job's adversary in this whole trial. So 40 chapters in, Job was, uh, the last mention of Satan was in chapter two. And Satan was the one who said, well, Job only serves you because you protect him and because you provide for him. That's why he's loyal to you. But if you affect his body, if you take away his stuff, he will curse you to your face. And God's like, okay, you can have him, but spare his life. And Job was plundered, right? He was beaten down. He was made very low. If Job is vulnerable before these land and sea creatures, how much more vulnerable before Satan whom God has made. But Satan, like all beasts of the earth is a created being who can only go as far as God will allow him. He could not touch Job unless God allowed him to God had him on a lead. It's like God, he barred the oceans and said, these are, this is as far as you go. You go no further. And it was the same for Satan where he says, go no further. Turn your Bibles to one Peter five, Verses eight and nine. The context is, and the main point is not just to warn us of an adversary or remind us, but really to remind us that we have a God who is greater, a God who has redeemed us, a God who saves and establishes us by his grace. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 it says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Satan has been overcome by the power of God because God is greater than everything he has created. Behemoth, Leviathan included. Imagine being afraid of behemoth, Leviathan, or Satan, and not holding God who created them in higher regard, that we would fear him and trust him and rely upon him for our salvation. Those other creatures would be fearsome because they could injure, but God is one who works to save us, to redeem us. We do not resist the devil by locking horns with him. It's by active faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. You can rebuke Satan until you're hoarse. What good can it do when he's doing exactly what God has permitted him to do? When God has said, this is as far you can go. And he goes just that far. Are you to rebuke him? When God has said, you can go this far. Shouldn't we be looking to the Lord who delivers us, who in whom is help and healing and restoration and salvation? What we ought to take aim at is our own self-confidence, our own pride, our own wrath. That's in our own hearts. It rests under the reeds, right? It's like in the covert of the marsh. It's not easily seen, but the behemoth is there. It's a big creature. And our wrath, our self-confidence, it hangs out. It hides out within us. And it's, a, it's something we cannot overcome or overpower in our own strength. Leviathan, he is the king of all the proud. But we realize like there's pride in me that I cannot tame. 
There is pride in me that is fearsome, that will not back down from a fight, that will always assert itself, that will hate, that will curse, that demands glory to self. When we realize that, like, wow, this is talking about something inside of me that I can't control. Sin that has me under bondage works to master us. We have self-confidence that rathers, that rivals behemoth. We have hard hearts that rival, rival that of Leviathan. And if all we do after this message is debate how behemoth or Leviathan ought to be classified by species, you've missed the point completely. That's not the point of this passage. Only God can take the sword to self-confident behemoth. Only God can break Leviathan's head in pieces, who is the king of the children of pride. And Job needed God's help to deal with his self-confidence, his wrath, his pride. All sin, self-confidence and pride included, it cannot be caught with a snare or a hook. It can't be cooked for breakfast. We can't safely cage them and play with them and think that they will be tame and safe. That's what sin does to us. It puts us on a lead. It puts us in a cage. It overpowers us. It binds us without mercy. It bites us in two. That is what it does. It's a destroyer of body and soul. But praise God, he has sent Jesus Christ who has overcome. He is the king of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus humbled himself to be pierced for our iniquities, to be bruised for our transgressions, And he provided atonement for our sins so we can repent. We can be born again by God's grace. Turn to Psalm 124, 6 through 8. And we'll close with this. Today we do have a time of communion. So after uh, I pray, will everyone who is a born again believer of Jesus Christ, follower of Christ, please come up and take of the the bread and the cup, and then we'll, I'll lead everyone in a prayer together. So all are welcome to that. Psalm 124, 6 through 8. This is a song of praise to God who has delivered believers from sin and death. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth, Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. We have not been given as a prey to the devil, a prey to sin. And this is, I love where it says the snare is broken. Should you be afraid of a snare that's broken? A mousetrap that's snapped? Is it dangerous at all anymore? No, it can't hurt you because the spring has been sprung. It can't snap down in your fingers and cause pain. And sin, its power over us has been broken by the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus died so we could have eternal life. He was wrapped in grave clothes and buried in a tomb so we could be set free. He rose from the dead. He went to heaven and is at the right hand of the father. So we can live free from the power of sin over us today here on earth. Because God is our help. The snare is broken. We have freedom and forgiveness and new life in him. And my desire is that we would experience that when it comes to 
self-confidence, wrath, pride. These hidden things that God knows, and maybe we don't even see, like Job, he was unaware. But God loved him enough to tell him the truth and to seek to restore him as he restores us. So let's use our freedom to humble ourselves before God, to repent of sin, to fear him, say, God, sometimes this sin that has power over my life seems so strong, but you are the one to be feared. You're the one who can do something about it. You've done everything about it because you've sent your son to pay the price for our sin. So let's praise him. Let's walk in that newness of life for his marvelous deliverance. Have you come to that point? It's one thing to feel guilt and shame over sin or to admit that you've done wrong, but have you come to a place of rejoicing in his salvation and in the freedom of being made righteous by his grace? We can be there by his grace right now. Could I invite the team forward, please, to close in a song as people come up to receive the elements? And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to remember the love that he demonstrated by dying in our place on Calvary, that we could be washed clean of our sins, that there could be atonement made, that we could be restored and renewed, that we could be made righteous through faith in Jesus. And we thank you for the new life you've given us. We thank you for the power that you've shown to create the world, to create things like behemoth and Leviathan, And also to give us um, salvation from our own pride, self-confidence. Lord, we look to you today knowing that we need you. Knowing that without you we can do nothing. That without you we are dead in sins and trespasses and deserving of hell. But you have made a way to know you, to have fellowship with you, to go to heaven. And for us, eternity begins now. And we thank you for that relationship we can have through faith in Jesus. We thank you for the new life you've given us and the insight into your word and even into ourselves that you shine the light in the dark places so that you would bring salvation. And Lord, I pray that salvation would be received today in this place, that there would be forgiveness received today, right now, and that we would rejoice in your goodness, that we would celebrate how good and gracious you are to save us, to look upon us when we were deserving of wrath and to let your mercy shine upon us. Lord, I pray in this time, our hearts would be still before you to know you are God, that we would draw near to you in faith and trust you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.